Hello, everyone. This is Sakev hosting the show. We are back at Cricket with an Accent. And today, I have a very familiar voice that most of you have read his work. Uh, it's Kamran Abbasi. The man has worn multiple hats. I'm more and more impressed after I read his upcoming book, where uh, you know he talks about his journey as a fan of Pakistan cricket, and then he became an analyst and a commentator. So uh, let me just not waste much time in bringing Kamran Abbasi to the show. Welcome to the show, Kamran, and thank you for taking time to share uh, anecdotes and history, you know, and historical evidence as a fan when you wrote this book. Hello, Sakib. It's a real pleasure to join you and looking forward to talking about Pakistan cricket. Uh, absolutely. And I, I'm going to come from the vantage point of an Indian, which I think is going to, you know, just give a slightly different viewpoint. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, you, you, just a brief introduction here from your end. You're also a doctor, which, of course, I didn't know. I'm sure your diehard fans know. I really love your <laughs> writing, but, you know, you yeah, definitely have you. worn multiple hats. You've bowled, you've bowled to two Pakistani prime ministers at the Nets. There you go. I mean, talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, what a, what a history that is. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, if I just tell you a little bit about myself. So I started off, um, played a lot of cricket when I was, you know, when I was, when I was young. Um, and of course, we all dream of being cricketers, but I ended up becoming a doctor instead. <laughs> um, but I retained that passion for cricket and always wanted to be involved in some way. Um, and what happened was that uh, you know we'd I'd moved to England. I was born in Pakistan. I lived there till I was four. Then we moved to England, um, and uh, what I found was that Pakistan was my it, it was my reference point during my upbringing because we were, we were essentially first generation immigrants, and our relatives were essentially all in Pakistan. I guess it was the same for many, many families from India as well, both both in the UK and US and elsewhere. Uh, so it's a very similar experience uh, as many um, Asian people felt who were, who were newly emigrated to countries outside of the, the subcontinent. Um, and, and so, you know, we all that mattered to us was what was happening in Pakistan. And of course, the most visible representation of that was what was happening in the cricket team. Uh, and the fortunes of the cricket team and in some way I think one of the narratives of the book is that the fortunes of Pakistan in, in my mind have kind of been mirrored by the fortunes of the cricket team uh, and at that time in the 70s and 80s I think Pakistan was sort of up and coming things were were looking up the the future was looking bright and rosy and even though we were outside Pakistan we thought well you know things are going well um, and, and the cricket teams beginning to beginning to make progress as well. So that was really why you know Pakistan cricket mattered so much to me. Um, and uh, the reason I got into writing was that oh, I had a passion for writing. That that's a given. Um, is that I perceived a real sense of uh, injustice towards the Pakistani team whenever they visited England. Um, in the media reports that I read, in the broadcast that I watched, and that, as somebody uh, a fan of Pakistan cricket, upset me quite a lot. And I've and and I thought, well, I'd like to say something. I'd like to fight back. I'd like to give my own version of events, give my own view of what's happened, the kind of the Pakistani view, <laughs> or the Asian view, the Asian perspective uh, on events. And now, if you people who were alive in those days. Uh, we'll know that the media was much more dominated by the English media and the Australian media. And you rarely heard 
um, anybody from South Asia, outside of South Asia. So in a way I wanted, to, I felt a sense of injustice. It's one of the things that I've often felt and fought against. Um, and that's what inspired me to write. And by this time I was a, a junior doctor and I still wanted to write. Uh, and I sent off a couple of articles um, to various places. Um, and, and luckily um, I got a break. Uh, and that was really my first break in journalism. And I, was, and I wrote about the Pakistan team's tour to England uh, in 1996 now. So that was my first piece that I wrote. Um, so the book essentially uh, begin, begins with my cricket writing then. And so it's, it's covering 25 years, a quarter of a century, essentially, of my cricket writing, of covering Pakistan cricket from the perspective of somebody who's lived there, grown most of their life in England. But entangled with that, of course, is the experience of being uh, an Asian immigrant uh, in England and experiencing uh, cricket in England, uh, what it was like to be an Asian trying to play cricket in England, the, the, dis the discrimination that was evident that we experienced um, in the league structure, just living in Thatcher's Britain, which wasn't a very you know, um, welcoming place for immigrants. So the book covers that as well, as well as the journey of British Asian cricketers from seeking parity, you know, seeking a place in Yorkshire, wanting to get picked for Yorkshire, uh, not being allowed to play for Yorkshire because of the homegrown rule that Yorkshire had, and then becoming established test cricketers for England. So there are three themes. One is uh, being a, a, a Pakistan supporter living in England, which is an interesting experience for anybody, you know, anybody in the South Asian diaspora, I'm sure can relate to that. Secondly, it's my own experience of growing up as a as a, one, a wannabe cricketer uh, in the leagues of Yorkshire uh, and elsewhere in England. And thirdly, the experience of British Asian cricketers trying to break through to the cricket team. Um, and when I look back, it's been a really fascinating, uh, interesting, at times demoralising journey but with many many uplifting moments just for the listeners here Cameron, before we get into the other general topics uh, where does the title come from i understand the title because i understand the language but what are the connotations behind the title and how long was this book in coming was in making uh, well <laughs> i mean the book's a long time in making because it's drawn from uh, you know my writing um over the last 25 years uh, and englishstan is a is 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 you know is how people often call England in Pakistan you know in South Pakistan Englishstan um you uh, you live in Englishstan and um so that that it's a word that people use but the the way I'm using it is like is is because my upbringing I'm Pakistani by birth my upbringing in England has really brought into sharp focus those two cultural identities so the identity of being uh, from from South Asia, from Pakistan, but also my upbringing in England. So in that word, almost sort of epit epitomizes what I what my life is all about. Sort of part Pakistan, part England, um, and hence we have Englishstan. And one of the pieces um, I, I write is to say, well, you know, there are many great rivalries. Of course, Pakistan has this rivalry with India. That's the rivalry we understand and we know the reasons for that. Um, but for me, the big rivalry, of course, as an immigrant in England, 
is the rivalry with England because that's the that's what I've experienced. You know, the the the, the culture, the racism, the discrimination um, in English society that any immigrant does uh, in any country. Um, and so my life has been defined by that culture clash between being a Pakistani immigrant and by the host English culture. So that's why the title is what it is, but also allows the focus for the for the book, because if you look back and then, and it's a real privilege to write about Pakistan cricket because it's such an enjoyable uh, enterprise. Yes, it has terrible moments, uh, but they make the highs even more enjoyable. Um, a lot of the, high, the the major incidents have happened in England. So that, again, adds to the, the relevance of me writing about this. Um, and if we go, you know, with the Imran's led tour of 1982, all the incidents on the major tours of England um, that have taken place, the controversies with umpiring, with um, with ball tampering, with spot fixing, uh, the 1999 World Cup defeat, the incident of the forfeited uh, test match in 2006, the T20 World Cup win in 2009, then as I said, the spot fixing of 2010, winning the, you know, going number one in the test championship. Um, which is a big moment for Pakistan. That happened in England, that happened at the Oval, and then following that out with the Champions Trophy win. So all of those, you know, in, the English relationship or Pakistan in England is also a major part of the story of Pakistan cricket. So um, in the book, it, it is that perspective of an immigrant following Pakistan cricket, I describe it as the turbulent winds of Pakistan cricket. But much of the story happened in Pakistan. Um, but I do, uh, sorry, in England, much of the Pakistan story has happened in England. But for any Indian uh, fans out there, I do devote a very long chapter to the uh, relationship between India and Pakistan and my argument that India and Pakistan should play cricket much more often, uh, which would be better for the region. Uh, and for all of us who love cricket. No, I, I think you s- unpacked quite a lot there, and I can go in multiple directions here, I said, as I pose my first real question <laughs> of the podcast. And and you said something very important. There was an overall experience and then your own personal experience. And we all, I think, go through that. You know, like there's a, even in society, there's an experience of how the society or school views, and there's a family, you know, dinner table conversations be it on cricket yeah. or bigger topics, and that's that forms one's opinion. So let me just bring in a very, uh, how, how do I say it? It's, it's a very problematic topic when it comes to Pakistan and England, and you mentioned it. Imran Khan in his book mentions it. It started with the Idris Big Donald Carr incident. Then mm. it never, I think, the shadows were so huge. It never escaped. I think every time Pakistan came, beat Imran asking for removal of a certain uh, umpire. Uh, from, I think it was, uh, if his name David Constant, if I say it yes. right. Yes, so, you have, yeah. So, so as, a, as a journalist who's achieved quite a lot and has dug deeper in the game, was this incident or history on your radar as a young boy? Because I just learned about this incident during COVID when I read Imran's book, and then I also saw your book. So talk about this. Uh, did you know the bad blood that you talk about? This was where, you know, it all started. Yeah, so uh, obviously when I was growing up, when I was little, I knew nothing about this incident. <laughs> um, um, all I, I, what I 
felt though was the experience of a fan going to watch Pakistan play and or watching it on television or at the stadiums in England and seeing the unfair umpiring and the controversies that the umpiring caused. Um, so the first thing to say is that there's a very long history uh, of controversy in terms of umpiring between Pakistan and England, uh, as there is between um, many countries. Um, but certainly the Pakistan-England uh, kind of row over umpiring lasted at least you know four or five decades. Um, and then when I became and read more about cricket uh, as I grew up, um, this incident in 1955 with Donald Carr and the MCC tour of Pakistan um, became sort of pivotal, pivotal, or should we say it's an exemplar of the kind of attitude, the colonial attitude towards Pakistan, perhaps more so towards Pakistan than India. Um, uh, and it, it was something that obviously Pakistanis found deeply offensive. Um, whereas the English uh, and the MCC players thought of it as a kind of schoolboy prank. And I perhaps I just describe what happened. Um, the MCC team were unhappy with the LBW decisions that, were, that happened on that tour. And of course, you know, they were suspicious. They thought the Pakistani umpires weren't up to standard. And that was been a constant theme. Um, and so as a prank, a so-called prank, uh, they bundled... Uh, Idris Beg, who'd actually stood in Pakistan's first test, um, into the back of a, a cart, uh, smuggled him back to the hotel and, and doused him with cold water. There's something called the water treatment and they and they laughed it off. But of course, Pakistan and, and it's important the Pakistanis weren't amused. There were rallies held, as you can imagine, in yeah. South Asia. It's quite easy to organise a rally. Um, there was a rally held in Peshawar demanding that the team went home. Um, and, and it was a deep insult uh, to Pakistan. It reeked of colonial arrogance, um, especially since the English were drummed into their sort of imperial culture, but also the culture of cricket um, in a way that, you know, the, the, pers the lawmaker is the person we respect the most. You know, the empire is in a position of hegemony. And um, the fact that they... It, it was obvious then that there was one rule for English umpires and another rule for Pakistani umpires. Um, that was the problem. And then this thing resurfaced almost on every tour. And then there was a famous Shakurana incident uh, in the 1987 tour when uh, England went to Pakistan. Shakurana was at square leg. Yeah. Mike Gatting was, was quite near him. He was captain. He was changing the field as the bowler ran in. Of course, you're not meant to do that. Uh, Shakurana told him not to do that. Uh, and they had a row. You know, they jabbed, they pointed their fingers at each other. It became a kind of steaming row, became a national incident. And I experienced that incident as a sort of 16, 17-year-old growing up um, in England and seeing how the British media portrayed that. And they very much portrayed that as being on the side of Gatting. You know, look, our, look at our boys. They were being unfairly treated by Pakistani umpires. Whereas, as, a, as with my loyalty to Pakistan, I could see how, again, offensive this was uh, to Pakistan and how colonial this thinking was. Um, and then England, England players were offered a hardship bonus, and that was almost the final insult. You know, it's a hardship to go to Pakistan, so we offer you a bonus to make your life a little easier, the experience a little sweeter. Um, 
but Imran wasn't the kind of person to take these kind of things lying down, as I'm sure you, you know from his book and from your experience of him. And he was very quick to, when he became captain, to argue back about the empowering decisions that Pakistanis experienced at the hands of um, English umpires when they toured England. Uh, and of course, there's a similar when they went to Australia. And you can say, I'm sure when Pakistan and India tour each other, uh, there have been home decisions. I think it was, it, was, it was a feature of international cricket in those days that there were home decisions, as we called them, and everybody experienced them. And what happened with Imran was he, in his first tour uh, as captain in 1982 in England, um, England won 2-1, but there was a deciding test at Headingley, which I was at. I was at the ground. Um, I was watching. And it was the second innings. Imran was batting, as he often did, with the tail, trying to set England a, a total that he might be able to defend. He was batting with Sikandar Bakht, who, if anybody can remember, wasn't much of a batsman. I mean, Sikandar was basically batting with his pad. He had quite long legs, you know, skinny long legs. He was just thrusting his legs down down the track and, and not being given out LBW, of course, in those days, um, but sticking around enough that Imran was potentially uh, working towards a defendable total. And then he was given out. Sikandar both was given out by David Constant, uh, caught bat and pad, and it was obvious he hadn't touched the ball. You know, you could, it was so blatant. I could, I know, I was sort of at mid on watching it and it was obvious that he hadn't touched the ball um the ball was nowhere near his bat and even the english fans around us were saying oh that was an appalling decision and you could see the pakistani players were really upset and that was and as a result pakistan lost the match um and ever since and david constant was the umpire and ever since then i mean he became very much the target for for pakistan because they wanted him removed from the panel uh, and they tried very hard in 1987 uh, on Pakistan's tour to England, uh, 1986 Pakistan's tour to England, um, to, to have him removed, but they were unable to do so. Because uh, at the time, it was the home cricket board that decided on its, on its test panel. Um, so the umpiring thing lingered. Eventually, actually, Imran was very influential in Pakistan, very influential in persuading the ICC that we should have neutral umpires. Um, and so that was, I think that was a good thing. I think we can all agree that having neutral umpires has been a real positive uh, in international cricket. And a lot of that arose from the injustice that Pakistan felt at the hands of England. And that dates right back to Donald Carr and Idris Beg in 1995 and the water treatment. No, I think uh, you're right. and. Uh... Imran and Pakistan were not alone. I've also read that India had also requested a similar, made a similar request uh, to not have David Constant on one of their tours. So yeah, these, uh, these incidents are definitely not an anomaly by itself. And that's how I think uh, home partisan umpiring was viewed in many parts of you know, the cricketing rivalries. Uh, so let's, uh, I, I wanna talk briefly about the racism in Yorkshire. Again, that's a powerful topic. It's, uh, it's always existed in, in the Western world, I'm sure, to a certain degree. And if we go back to our countries, which is subcontinent, we also display a different form of racism, but let's stick to the one you mentioned in the book. So I'm gonna recite a paragraph which stayed with me in the book. Uh, mm. It's on page 23, it says, quote, growing up in Yorkshire in the 1970s and 80s was a unique cricketing experience for a migrant. You played cricket in your own leagues, and if you're Asian, 
team did play any competitions in an official league, you'd play against teams of white players. You wouldn't think about playing for a non-Asian team and the other teams would try to recruit you however good you were. You were cricketers of the shadows. These fences were slowly dismantled, but the status quo of racial division was tactically, tacitly accepted for too long, end of quote. Mm. So mm. again, I mean, there's a whole chapter here and this is not a topic that, you know, can be covered even in a podcast dedicated to racism, but just as a young boy growing there and trying to make some inroads as a cricketer yourself, talk about the accounts that Indians, Pakistanis, or men of color faced in Thatcher's England, especially in Yorkshire, that had poster boys such as Jeffrey Boycott as a homegrown <laughs> cricketers. Uh, try to unpack in a, in a non-complex way because you lived it for someone who has no understanding of it. So the phone is yours. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, thank you. I think, as you say, it's a very complex issue. But if I could simplify it and, um, and make it as, as understandable as possible, uh, there was a sort of national thing going on in that in those days, um, there was things are moving more right wing. There was an anti immigrant sentiment. You know, there was you know, talk of sending people back home uh, to India, to Pakistan, etc. Um, the National Front, which was a right-wing racist party, were, were getting support, marching through towns and cities like Rotherham, where I lived. Um, and aside from that, in Yorkshire, Rotherham's in Yorkshire, um, Yorkshire had a homegrown cricket rule. So that meant that only people born in Yorkshire could play for Yorkshire. So even if you were English, you were white, um, and your parents were from Yorkshire, if you just happened to be born by some mischance outside Yorkshire, you could not play for the county. Uh, now, all right, it was, fair, it was unfair for everybody, but, it, but obviously particularly discriminated against uh, minorities and immigrant communities because invariably none of us have been born in Yorkshire. We all m moved in from other parts of the world. So... Growing up um, in Yorkshire, I wanted to be a cricket. Let's face it, you know, like most young boys, I had a dream. I wanted to play cricket. Um, and I, I played to a reasonably high standard. But the fact was that I could never get anywhere in Yorkshire, um, even though I went to the trials, because they wouldn't pick me because I, was, I wasn't born in Yorkshire. So there wasn't that opportunity for me to progress. I'm not saying I was good enough to make it as a first-class cricketer, but just in my, if I was even if I had been, I would not have been able to progress and make it uh, as a first-class cricketer in Yorkshire and progress my career simply because I hadn't been born there. And then the other things to remember to take note of are that when you're an immigrant, you don't really understand the system too well, or you're not well enough connected to think, well, all right, if I can't make it in Yorkshire, can I do it some other way? You're, you're, you, know, you don't have the connections or the understanding to progress your career in another way. So you've, you're absolutely locked out. Of that, of that whole system. And then on top of that, the whole atmosphere in Yorkshire was full of people that we as immigrants didn't really feel much attraction towards. So people like Jeff Boycott, uh, Ray Lingworth, there was an ongoing feud in Yorkshire between them for power of the cricket club. And neither of them really cared or I mean obviously Jeffrey Boycott has become a global personality. Um, but in those days he was very much a Yorkshireman and, you know, he didn't relate very well or very easily, and neither did Raylingworth, uh, to the immigrant community. So Yorkshire very much felt like 
somebody else's county, even though we lived there. And then this was also further reinforced with the league cricket because there was a very strong culture of league cricket, and, but they were mostly white teams um, full of white players. Uh, and us as Asians, we didn't play in the, those leagues. We had our own teams, there were unofficial leagues, we played our own cricket. And so again, you would not, you couldn't, even if there had been an opportunity to play for Yorkshire, you were excluded from the official structure that would see you recognised. And immigrant communities outside Yorkshire obviously had that as a major problem as well, because they didn't have the homegrown rule problem, but they had the problem of not being visible as cricketers because they played in their own unofficial league structures. Hence my comment that we were cricketers of the shadow. So, I mean, at the time, you know, I was young. I mean, the world was, you know, seemed to me a world of opportunity. I'm a sort of glass, glass is half full kind of person. Um, I shrugged it off and got on with life. Um, but when I, the more I look back on it, uh, you know, it's pretty awful. You know, it's a horrible thing uh, to be in that situation. And I think I was lucky enough that I managed to get a decent education and move on with my career in other ways. But for, for many, many people, um, if they had dreams of making it in sport or in other ways, that racism locked them out. Um, so I hope I managed to explain that as simply as possible. But it was, a, it was a really strange time. And then eventually Yorkshire changed the rule. And as I'm sure some of your listeners and you will know, ironically, the first Asian to play for, for Yorkshire was Sachin Tendulkar. Uh, because he became Yorkshire's overseas player um, and there was you know, big noise about him playing. It was great that he played, uh, but the, the fact still remained that no Asian born in Yorkshire had played for Yorkshire. Of course, that's different now. That's, you yeah. know, things, are, things, are, things have progressed, but we're still seeing, uh, as you, you may know about um, Azim Rafiq, who's a young cricketer, um, who's still talking about the experience, racism he's still experienced uh, in, a, in his career very recently at Yorkshire. Um, so, so the problem has not been solved. Even this week, Yorkshire were making statements about how they were going to address and solve this problem. So even though the homegrown rule has gone, Asian players have played for Yorkshire, that, that racism that, that people are perceiving is still very real, still existent. And I'm afraid it's going to take a long time to go simply because um, the, there's a very sort of, in a way, the times now feel very much like the times in the 80s where there's very strong anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, uh, and so people from outside England, you know, for, in terms of their heritage, don't feel as welcome. So I, I think there's a... There's a long way to go still, which is a shame because we're talking about me growing up in Yorkshire in the 70s and 80s, almost 50 years later, and we're still talking about racism uh, preventing people's careers in cricket. Sure. Uh, I promised to myself that I wouldn't dig deeper in this because there are other topics, but now with your response, I'm inclined to go a small question <laughs> here. So yeah. it's totally okay in my humble view to get a Tendulkar or an Akram or Azhar to play for county cricket, different counties. But mm. it's still, in my view, different than getting a local lad who's part of the system because these are superstars. I'm not saying, you know, that you are not going mm. away from the colonial shift or whatever, uh, you know, the values were that were preventing other races to be part of it, the home-born and bred rule. But I think 
yeah, getting a Tendulkar to play, it's, it's symbolic of many things. But he's a major superstar. Yorkshire also needed him. So when does the actual change come into play after that? When do they start bringing the local Indians and Pakistanis and give him a chance? Because always there'll be cues to line up to see Sachin Tendulkar even practice. But to me, yeah. it's more symbolic. But when does a real change come into practice? Yeah, so I mean, that, that's, I mean, I agree. I agree with that point. That the, the fact that Yorkshire, you know, they, they got Sachin was brilliant. You know, what a player, of course. Um, and what a, what a role model to any cricketer. Um, but, but, but the problem was he wasn't, and it didn't really change anything materially. Um, and it still took, you know, we're still talking the turn of the of the millennium, really, uh, the end of the century before um, homegrown cricketers, people, you know, Asians born in Yorkshire, start playing for Yorkshire. And then over that, that sort of 10 years, 2000 to 2010, that's when more and more start to emerge. And we, we get the sense, think, well, things are really changing. Um, but then when you hear stories like the Azim Rafiq story, um, which is very much in the news uh, this year, you think, well, okay, things have only gone so far and there's still quite a long way to go. And I agree with you that it's only when um, homegrown, homegrown Asian, uh, critics of Asian origin feel that there is no uh, barrier to their progression uh, in Yorkshire cricket and other county cricket in England they will, that's when, that's the sign, that's the real sign of progress. I mean, interestingly, I did a survey of a number of Asian cricketers who played for England in 2006. I surveyed them um, for, for the Wisdom Cricketer. Um, and a lot of my questions were about their experience. So it's people like Ravi Bapara um, and how they got to, the, to, to play for England and what racism they experienced. And in terms of the five or six of these people, and it's quite interesting that they themselves hadn't said they hadn't really experienced racism. And that was really fascinating finding because we, you, you didn't expect to hear that. But when I thought about it a little more, it did, did make sense because if you're a successful player and you've made it to the top, A, if you're a current player, you, you probably aren't going to say, you know, there's racism everywhere. It's probably not too good for your career at that point. Um, and secondly, well, perhaps you haven't noticed it or experienced it because you've been so focused. My sense of these people was that they're so focused on their cricket that whatever's happening, they're not seeing all the negatives. And I guess you can't see the negatives if you're to succeed in any sport. Um, and so perhaps the experience of people who make it to the top um, so Asian cricketers or people from minorities who make it to the top in any country, um, perhaps their experience is different to those who, who don't make it inevitably because it's very selective. You know, they, they're kind of self-selected because they've made a success of their careers. And the people you really need to ask about racism are the ones that don't succeed and the ones whose careers are frustrated. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not only a problem in England, as you're saying, it's a problem in, in, in every country that uh, getting minority players into the national team um, is difficult and it's hard to give that equal opportunity.
Sure. Well, again, uh, I'll urge the listeners, whoever has gotten this far in the podcast, the book is a fascinating read. There's a deeper dive onto this topic and there's a lot covered. Even the rise of a certain Nasser Hussain as England captain was seen <laughs> as a real change. But I'll quickly yeah. shift gears here and let's talk about Imran. Uh, yeah. again, in my conversation and my fandom as an Indian a uh, young boy rooting against Pakistan. I've covered Imran on quite a few of my podcasts and I think the best one was Amar Nakhvi when we compare the Imran versus Miyadad, uh, you know, rivalry within the team uh, from an Indian <laughs> lens. For, for yeah. you, I have a different question here. Uh, yeah. the legacy of Imran is pretty complicated in my view because he was like an extension of, of what Mansoor Ali Khan Patodi was to India. He was a Renaissance man. He was English. He got his cricket mm. education. England, he was he could yeah. see some of the things that were being said. So he was an agent of change. But then what yeah. is the real legacy? Because he became bigger than the system. So we all talk about his heroics getting Yunus Ahmed out of seventeen at exile, picking Bakar Yunus and Tosif Ahmed at Nets. And the stories are legendary. But it's also a very hard act to follow. So mm. you think uh, like you talk about the book, The Big Bang in ninety two, that was a peak of Imran and then his exit. But what follows yeah. like total turmoil. So explain to the listeners here why legacy of Imran is so hard to achieve. And it was just, I mean, I don't want to say a false legacy. It just came from nowhere. So it's hard for anyone to follow in the footsteps. And what I think, what happened to Pakistan cricket after that, in your view as a fan, as an analyst? Yeah, so I mean, I think you're very right about Imran. I mean, he was an amazing cricketer, amazing personality. And he did have that advantage of being, looking in from the outside, I think. I like to think that gives me a little bit of advantage um, when I'm writing about Pakistan Creek. So I'm, I, and I can take a, a sort of view as one step away and, and take a look. And when you look at things slightly from the outside, you can see things in a way that people in the system uh, can't really, don't really uh, kind of single out themselves. So, so he, and he, was a, you know, he was a clever person, um, obviously an, an, an incredible cricketer, very, very motivated. But what his great power was, I mean, he wasn't the greatest of captains by all accounts um, because uh, a lot of his captaincy relied on the ingenuity of Javid Miandad. I think they were a very good combination. I mean, Javid was the um, smart cricket brain. Uh, Imran was the leader um, in, in that combination. Uh, uh, Javid was less... Um, inspiration in his leadership and, and, and Imran was a very very powerful role model I mean he stood up and said you know I'm gonna I'm leading this team I'm going to take it in this direction I'm going to stand up for ourselves we're going to take on the other teams the big teams on an equal footing we're not going to uh, feel an inferiority complex we're not going to feel intimidated by them it's the opposite we're going to we're going to give them a dose of what they've been giving us um, and as I said to you earlier, this was kind of mirroring Pakistan emerging as, as an independent nation. Um, then in 1992, of course, as I described it as a kind of the big bang, but the, the big bang being the fact that it all came together, you know, that World Cup win, it was, it was incredible, the culmination of Imran's career, but also uh, the journey of Pakistan cricket to really do something meaningful and also as a nation to do something meaningful. Um, uh, on the world stage and that all happened at that point um, and it was a wonderful moment and he thought well you know the future here the next decade at least should belong to Pakistan to, uh, to, to quite a degree because there are some wonderful even if you take Imran out of that 
he's left some great players. We're seeing Wakar, um, Jawi, there was still playing. The batting was strong. Um, the spin bowling was strong. So it had all the ingredients to have a very, very good 10 years. Um, but the fact that Imran succeeded in the way that he did um, was despite the system. And so only rare people can succeed despite a system. And if if somebody succeeds to the extent that Imran did, it kind of papers over the problems in the system. So you think, oh, the system's okay. Everything's all right. Look, we've got Imran, we've got Rasim, we've got Wakar, Saeed Anwar, Jawed Mina, all these people are coming through. So everything's all right with the system. But actually what really happened was that through the power of his personality, his determination and his combination, his partnership with Javid, um, they'd made a success of Pakistan um, in that 10 years between 1982 and 1992 when Imran was essentially in charge. Um, And so when he was gone and there was no Imran there, the, the formula only worked if there was somebody of Imran's personality and character to deliver that. Um, and you had a wonderfully talented team, probably the best team that Pakistan's had in its history in the 1990s. And you had a you know a really smart cricket brain in Wasim Akram. You know we all know you know we all respect Wasim, and you know, he he's, he's he's doing well with his coaching stints. We like his commentary. He has good insights, but he's not an Imran. Imran was a diff- was a very strong leader, very clear about what he wanted how he was going to achieve success. And that is a hard act for anybody to have followed. So in a way, you were always, you was almost setting, whoever came next was bound to fail. I know we had Javed Mindal for a while, but essentially Wasim was the one that, that took over eventually from Imran. And so it, it, was, it was too big an ask simply because the system supporting that success had never been fixed. And then the other undercurrent was that, of course, you know, we know the rise of, of match of, of betting, offshore tournaments. Probably, you know, there was match fixing that was taking place. I'm not saying Pakistan's, and you know, I'm not uh, directing this at any particular match or encounter. But you know, anybody who followed cricket in that decade knew that that was in the back of everybody's mind, and it all came to a head. Um, in 1999, in 2000, we had the Qayyum inquiry in Pakistan, which unearthed um, probably you know, a series of um, incidents and um, failures, system failures, that led to the integrity of, of Pakistan cricket being questioned. And then you thought, well, all right, they never fixed the system. In fact, it got worse because there's a stain of corruption on it. Um, and then that probably explains why you had a successful team and they never quite achieved the success that they should have achieved because the system, in fact, deteriorated. Um, and we thought everything was OK simply because Imran's period in charge had made it seem that way. And uh, at the same time, Pakistan as a country, I think, started to lose its way a little bit. And um so it, it all kind of mirrored each other and, and it came together and, and and we've sort of, I don't think Pakistan cricket has ever recovered and it's been a sort of ongoing decline from, from that decade, um, which there have been brief rallies. And this is why one of the things about, which I think the English perspective is interesting because 
many of these incidents, the the highs, the winds, and some of the the lows um, controversies subsequently have happened in England on English soil. Um, and so we've had the rise of Pakistan cricket up to, up to the 90s, 1992. Then we had a decline, then we had the disaster of then, you know, of, of Pakistan being exiled, of the spot fixing crisis, the forfeit uh, to test match in 2006, the death of Bob Palmer, everything was going from bad to worse. Um, and then we've had the renaissance uh, with, with Ms. Barr-Ulhaq and his time in charge. So um, that, but underlying all of that, the system has, I don't believe, has, has fundamentally evolved enough to support sustained success, which is why Pakistan remains dependent on individuals to, to shape the success. No, you're absolutely right. Again, a lot unpacked there. And I would even go this far saying uh, the Imran the world got to see was also a byproduct of actually not having a solid system because a solid system where processes were in place would not have led to that kind of a larger-than-life figure. Of course, he worked wonders mm. in Pakistan, and his fans, I'm one too. Uh, of course, I became a fan after his retirement yeah. because I can yeah. appreciate him now than when I was, yeah. you know, seeing him in green, you know, going against <laughs> my team. No, but I think uh, uh, your adopted uh, motherland, I mean, England, you talk about a young athlete. And again, I would urge the listeners to read that chapter. But my thing uh, is in the way we play our cricket in subcontinent, and you mentioned the hierarchy is always, you know, the senior players get the captaincy and England mm. and Australia don't work that way. And, you know, when as mm. a junior, you, you locked horns versus Mike Atherton and your coach told him that this is a future England captain. We don't have that kind of stuff in India. So your mm. cricketing education in England, what is it different than what people in subcontinent do that a captain is identified at a young age or a Mike rarely gets to captain England, but in India and Pakistan, and maybe an extension to Bangladesh, the best two, three players get the job, while it's probably not the case in the English system. So if the question is valid, try to highlight any uh, similarities or actually any differences that you saw while honing your cricket skills as a young, uh, young cricket yeah. coach. Yeah, so, I mean, just, I mean, first of all, I agree with you. I think the fundamental difference is the importance of hierarchy. Um, we all know as South Asians that, you know, when there are good things, of course, we respect our elders, and um, that I'm not saying people in outside South Asia don't, but the degree to which we do that, may, I think, is probably more than in other places. Um, but but then you also get hierarchy, which is in workplaces, in sports, and I think that happens at the expense of meritocracy, which is a problem. And then there's a spectrum. You see a spectrum. So you've got the extreme hierarchy of South Asia. I think. India, I think, has, has moved on from that more than Pakistan has. Um, but this hierarchy is still very prevalent in, in, in Pakistan. Um, you, you, you then have the other, the, I'd say the other end of the spectrum is Australia, where they're very ruthless. You know, if you're either you're good enough to be in the team or you're not, if you're not, you're out. They pick the best player to be a captain as soon as that person... Um, uh, you know, if they, once their shelf life has passed, they chop them. You know, there's no sentiment. There's no, I mean, hierarchy comes with sentiment. So there's too much sentiment in what we do. In Australia, there's kind of almost no sentiment. It's absolutely ruthless. And England is sort of, I think it's a bit of a combination of the two. There's a bit of hierarchy. Um, but they uh, they veer towards, you know, 
making more meritocracy, meritocratic decisions. I mean, the example of Atherton is an interesting one. I mean, he was my, he's my age. I played against him as a schoolboy. Um, and even when we played against them, our teacher would say to him, oh, here, you know, this he's going to be captain of England and uh, he's been identified as a future England captain. And, and that's happened to a number of people in England over the year, over the, over the decades. Um, and so is that hierarchy or not? I don't know. I mean, or is it meritocracy? It seems a bit of a long shot to say at the age of 12, you're going to captain England. I mean, well, well done. For, I mean, that takes some amazing talent spotting. I mean, we, when we played against Atherton, um, he was a very good player, but he wouldn't strike us as being spectacular or here, here comes you know, the next England captain uh, or a future England captain. Um, so, I think the English system is a kind of a bit of a mishmash. I think there is some hierarchy there, I th but I think there's definite, uh, so we say, sort of preference, which you do get in South Africa. Oh, you get this everywhere where people are singled out to say, well, I think, you know, or favoured in some way. I'm not saying we oh, deserve the success he's had, but he was very, he was picked out, I think, very early. Um, that he would be a, an England player and a future England captain. I'm sure he wouldn't deny that. And that's happened to other people as well. Um, uh, probably the main thing about him was, I would say, his temperament. I think, you know, we were all going in, trying to blaze away, hit, you know, hit boundaries, play uh, the most dramatic shots we could think of. Uh, but he had this kind of amazing temperament. You know, he didn't play a false shot. He could bat for 50 overs exactly the same way. And I suppose to us that felt, well, what is this? Uh, but to, a, to an astute coach and observer, he stood he, out by a mile, you know? He, he was too proper for his age. Right. Well, no, but, <laughs> well, part, partly that, but also he clearly had the right temperament. And so, in all honesty, when I, you know, I've got sons and daughters who play cricket uh, when I try to advise them how to play it's, it's actually trying to be more like Atherton you know play the right shots and show that temperament I think it's that temperament is key and he did I mean I think if there was one attribute he had it was just an amazing temperament and maturity about his play from a very young age you think why well, he can do this at 12 I'm sure he's going to do this at 21 as well and of course he did you know he did that so I think the English system has was was I don't know I'm not saying it was very good then, but it identified Atherton and others. I think it's improved a lot. I think it's become much more um, open in terms of uh, bringing people on um, away from the major centres, um, and I think it's been very good at developing the players it identifies as future cricketers. Uh, so. It, they put a, they put increasing amounts of time I think into training and developing the netting um, those players um, which I think is paying off you know you see the success in in English cricket on the global stage and a lot of that happens because I've seen it firsthand you know from a very young age perhaps not in the day when I was playing but certainly over the last decade or so uh, cricketers are identified. Uh, and go into centres of excellence, into academies, and they are, you know, they are developed in a very intense and professional way, and that's why English cricket is reaping the rewards now. Oh, very well said. And again, you covered a different different angle than I was bargaining for. You're right. England has this, <laughs> no, they have their own hierarchy. I mean, you know, he was yeah. coming from a proper grammar school and the elite schools, so that's yeah. a part I don't also agree with. But I was just looking at the cricketing facets. Okay. 
a youngster is seen as captain, which again, I'm not saying is impressive, but it's unheard of from our part of the world. Mm. So let's talk about yeah. the other pet topic in the book. And of course, for any Pakistani fan, or even from Indians or anyone, there's clearly mm. Pakistan's lagging behind in the world of cricket. And you say there's a lack of clear roadmap of vision where they haven't modernized with the game. When it was all about talent, they, they were the most mercurial team. But now it's yeah. like they have been left behind because they haven't moved with the times and lack of technology or maybe the people running. There's a lot to unpack there. So what do you think are the two or three most pivotal things that have held them back? I know you've mentioned them in the book, but for the listener here too, so they can take a deeper dive and get this book. Uh, what are the couple of pivotal things that have kept Pakistan not paced with its neighbor and other cricketing forces? Yeah, so I mean, number one is 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 this kind of the system that, that uh, creates cricketers. So um, that's the domestic cricket. Um, I mean, Imran famously, you know, Rails against the domestic cricket, and there's been it's, it's an, it remains a controversial topic. I mean, between him and the cricket board over the last eighteen months, they've they've completely transformed domestic cricket, and but still people are very much against this. You know, so, so let's just say he's changed. They've changed that in the last eighteen months. He was demanding that change in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. He could see the system of having banks and corporations and association um, and other sort of commercial outfits running cricket teams wasn't to the benefit of Pakistan cricket. Um, so I, I, I actually agree with him on this point. And I know a lot of, a lot of people in Pakistan disagree on this point, but I think they disagree on the point that without those associate, those commercial entities that cricketers aren't supported, to, you know, they don't have a livelihood. I think that's a separate problem. You know, I think ensuring cricketers have a livelihood and a steady income, that's a separate problem to saying there's something fundamentally wrong by having a domestic cricket structure that's run by banks and other commercial entities. Um, running it on a regional basis makes much more sense, um, leads to you know, more intense competition. And you can see even already, you know, with the Pakistan Super League and the various competitions that are now taking place, there's much more of a buzz about domestic cricket in Pakistan than the, the, over the last 18 months than there has been for, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, so I think domestic cricket was, was the problem. And you can see that even though Pakistan had a very strong, generally first 11, they didn't have depth. And, and, and that arose from, from the domestic cricket problem. So that, that's number one. Uh, allied to the domestic cricket was this player development issue. Um, and so that requires technology facilities increasingly in this modern age. And if you look back, um, I'm, I'm sure you, you'll agree as an Indian fan that uh, in three sports, Pakistan are very strong. So, uh, so squash, hockey um, and cricket. You know, at times, you know, they've dominated those sports at various times. But Pakistan dropped off in hockey. They dropped off in squash. And the main reason for that was that, you know, we didn't have the facilities anymore. Uh, and the rest of the world moved on and Pakistan got left behind. You couldn't just rely on talent alone. You can't rely on talent alone anymore. You need infrastructure, you need facilities, you need technology. And so a similar thing is, um, is had beset the cricket for a very long time because we didn't have facilities. I mean, I would say that you probably have better facilities in England um, to support young cricketers in, in, in Lee, in, in, in kind of county setups than you had for 
first-class cricketers in Pakistan. And, 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 and that effect is felt, the impact of that is, is felt, I think, my argument is, is felt more in batting than bowling. I think, and perhaps this is where people might disagree with me, I think this is my personal perspective from my experience and observing cricket. I think bowling is a much more natural art. Um, you can, you don't need a bowling machine. You don't need video technology. You just need a ball, uh, somewhere to bowl, uh, probably somebody who can give you a few pointers about your action. But you can bowl, 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 and work out, you know, bits for yourself and become, um, you know, you can become a, a great bowler under the watchful eye of somebody who's, who's sensible, got good experience, uh, can see how you might improve your action, but without much technology, without great facilities. Whereas I think batting, modern batting, requires those things. Video analysis, bowling machines, nets, it requires all of that. And uh, Pakistan is, I think, you know, at the sea, of course, at the national level, that's all available. Below that, I think there's been a, a, a lack of those kinds of facilities. And again, that's why Pakistan's depth isn't there. But also, if we look at the strengths and weaknesses of the Pakistan team, um, you'd say the bowling's always strong. The batting has been strong in spurts. And we don't produce many good batsmen in Pakistan. I mean, Barbar Azam is, a very, is the exception that proves the rule. You know, where's he come from? You know, mostly, um, the, I, would, I would describe it as a dwindling line of great batsmen that Pakistan has. Um, so I think the impact of that, the facilities, the technology, the development is felt in the batting. Um, so I, th I think they're the two main things. And then the third, obviously the big thing, is the governance of Pakistan cricket because, I mean, that's been shambolic. There's been ad hoc committees that have, been, that have run Pakistan cricket. Um, because of you know we know South Asian culture, uh, not the best person has been running the cricket, uh, the, the national cricket, um, and 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 the chairmanship is in the gift of the uh, of whoever's you know the, the the president or prime minister of Pakistan, and so it's been the the governance has been inadequate as well. So hence these problems haven't got fixed. The problems have, have perpetuated, but that hasn't stopped you know 11 12 talented players being always there and available because it's a big population cricket everyone's mad about cricket the talent is will always be there but those problems that i've described those three problems of domestic cricket of player development of governance they are the ones that then stop you from the the best players in the country achieving their potential but also having sufficient backup to then have ongoing and sustained success and i'm encouraged that uh, not everybody is i think i'm encouraged that what's happening at the moment i think it is beginning to fix some of those problems All yeah right, so again uh, again combination of uh, who's running cricket in pakistan and who's leading it's it's, it's uh, i think for every board it's a it's a direct correlation and one of the, I shouldn't say funny is, but I think something that stayed with me and I want to share with the listeners here is what you mentioned in the book, that a decorated cricketer like Mohsen Khan was denied an interview by then chairman of selectors, Zahir Abbas, saying, oh, we know you really well, so we're giving a job to a better yeah. candidate. I mean, that's just, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's, like, it's funny. But uh, yeah. so, and you take that episode and then, then combine the legacies of Ulmer and Lawson. So where is Pakistan cricket at? 
what kind of a coach is needed? Is an English speaking coach a disadvantage? I know this is kind of a very stereotypical question, but uh, how do you see this? Talk yeah. about that. I mean, so, uh, well, let's take the example of Mosin. I mean, Mosin's um, example just shows you how the, the system is not fair, right? There's no process. Um, I mean, so first of all, Mosin got the job. I mean, I mean, you might think, well, how did he get the job? Right? That's, a, that's typically, you know, there wasn't that good reason for him to get it. But once he got it, he did a good job. You know, the team was successful. But the fact that then he just then dismissed <laughs> because people know him, oh, you know, you know, we're not even give you a chance to apply for the job properly. Uh, now it's become available officially. I think just shows you how inadequate the system and the process is. So I, I think that there, there is that, that's always there in the background, sort of personal whim and fancy that then dictates these matters. On the issue of you know what make who makes a good coach, um, it'd be a bit slightly odd for me, if, you know, in my position as somebody who's doesn't live in Pakistan now, to say, oh well, no, you can't have somebody from outside Pakistan as a coach. Um, and I know that a lot of people in Pakistan have that view, and they and let, let's examine that view. I mean, their view is that well, that person doesn't get the culture; they can't um, you know, relate to the players properly. Um, and there's no reason to go to somebody outside because um, we've got good enough coaches in Pakistan. Uh, I don't agree with that uh, with that take on things. Uh, the reason I don't agree with that is we're living, this is an international marketplace. You know, uh, if you think of a company or a university, any institution, they will now, it, that's operating internationally, and wants to be the best in the world, they will go out and find the best person. It doesn't matter where, where that person is from. They will find the best person to lead that particular organization. If it's a sport, uh, they'll find the, the best. Let's look at football. Um, the team that I you know, support, Liverpool uh, in football, uh, which might upset some of your listeners. Um, but uh, I mean, we, they haven't, they've, the manager is Jurgen Klopp who is a German, we all know that, but yeah, they've got, I mean, the Premier League clubs go and find the best manager, it doesn't matter where the person's from, they find the best manager to manage their team. So I, I think the principle is, the, the job becomes available, it's the national team, you want to be the best in the world, well, you better go and find the best person to be the coach. It doesn't matter where they are from. Um, if there's a language issue, well, you solve that by having translators getting them to learn the language. That is not an impediment to them, to them leading the team. You want the best development for your cricketers that you can possibly have. Uh, and so then when you think, I mean, who have Pakistan had? They've had various people. Um, obviously, Bob Walmer, Jeff Lawson, Dav Watmore, uh, Mickey, Arthur. Um, so, you know, I think they've all done positive things in different ways. But, I mean, the most prominent one, obviously, was Bob Walmer because of his pedigree as a coach, world-renowned as a coach, um, with all his methods and techniques. Um, and he did an amazing job. You know, he got inside the culture of Pakistan. He really gave it everything and wanted to understand the culture, the language. Um, and he grew to love Pakistani cricket um, and with all its kind of idiosyncrasies. So he... He was a real coup. I was so pleased when Pakistan got him. He improved Pakistan's cricket. He took them to number two in the world rankings. He did that um, on the back of you know, having to deal with some difficult personalities. You know, there was a 
Indemam was the, was the captain, and he was you know quite you know single-minded. You know, I think that was one of his attributes. Um, and he wanted to be the next Imran, um, and so that created some complications. As we know at the time, uh, the team became more devout during that period, and so there was there was a quite a complex situation to handle. So at one point in 2006. Pakistan came to England, they were number two in the test rankings, and they were doing very well in, in one-day cricket. They were very seriously being talked about as potential winners of the 2007 World Cup. So what Wilmer did was quite phenomenal. I think, he, you know, so he was the one person that disproved the whole argument that somehow you couldn't have somebody from the outside um, outside Pakistan, managing, uh, sorry, uh, coaching the, 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 the national team. Um, and then you know, we can perhaps talk about what happened to him, although everybody knows, unfortunately, he, he died during the 2007 World Cup and he's followed by Jeff Lawson. And you know, Lawson was never going to be the cricketer, uh, sorry, the, the coach that Woolmer was, because Woolmer was incredibly experienced, um, internationally renowned. But I think Jeff Lawson, he played a steadying hand during the period uh, that he was in charge um, and uh, perhaps he could have been given longer and, and then more recently I think that uh, sorry Mickey Arthur in particular I think had a very positive impact on the team because Pakistan cricket was essentially in the doldrums he was an internationally established and recognized coach he took on the challenge um, had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do and along with Mizbah, I think he helped Pakistan re-establish itself um, as a force in international cricket. So uh, they've been the two main periods, the Woolmer era and the, and the Mickey Arthur era, where uh, a non-Pakistani coach has really engaged uh, with, with the country's cricket. And I, I, because the coaches have been high quality, the, that, that's had a positive impact on results and performance. And so to me, that... that that proves the point that when you want, when you when you're hiring for that position, you find the best person available. It, it, it must it can't be a nationalistic decision. Sure. All right. So I want you to answer this as a fan. I know you're a fan first, but then you have become you know this writer who has a book now. So you are uh, you you are you know a public commentator internationally. So whatever you say will always be seen as a commentator. But as a fan, I mean a Pakistani fan. Is it a sentiment or a topic that you tend to disagree with the narrative and then you struggle as a Pakistani fans why other fans don't see it? Is there anything in general that over the years you've been voicing or you've been championing the cause, but you just get resistance from other lovers and well-wishers of Pakistan cricket? I'm talking at the fan level. Yeah, well, at the fan level, I mean, I think I get resistance on almost anything I say. I've got used to it. I mean, I think um, because I've, I mean, it's the same with, with, with medicine and, and same with cricket. I think I, I just my nature is to try and focus in on areas where I think there's disagreement, where there's dispute, where there's controversy. So I like to comment on those. I like to have a strong opinion on those. Uh, and often... You know, I will be critical. I mean, I, I think you have to be the job of a journalist or a, even a fan. I think a job of a fan is is not to be blindly loyal to your team. You know, I think you have to see where the problems are and you have to uh, identify them and say, well, you know, and, and I'm in the fortunate position that as a supporter of the cricket team, I've been able to then raise issues that I think 
have been problematic, you know, and then that, that need resolving. I mean, when I mean, let's take match fixing, if you speak out about match fixing, um, many people say, well, you're being disloyal or you're, you know, you shouldn't, you should, you should rally around your players and support them. But or spot fixing. But my view is, well, why? Why should you? You know, if you take um, spot fixing as an example, I've even argued, and I still argue, that just because you you're a cricketer and you and then you're found guilty, you go to prison for spot fixing, you admit to spot fixing. Uh, I find it particularly distasteful that we then seem to forget that very quickly. Um, and uh, yes, you know everybody needs rehabilitation. I'm, I'm fully supportive of that, and you know, anybody can stray from the path and of of the righteous, and, and things can go wrong in their lives. And we must rehabilitate people, um, but that doesn't mean they need to necessarily be a rehabilitated into cricket, um, and b doesn't mean we have to then go the other way in kind of um, being incredibly you know um kind of tub thumping about everything that they do uh, so so that's one issue where i think probably other people would disagree with me and they would say well you know we need to get behind these guys and they're still pakistani cricketers and i have a slightly different view on that um i mean that's just one example really sure. um but, but almost anything that i i comment yeah. on i mean i mean one thing that i'd make a big stand on i think that i did have an influence on and this was probably a sort of pro Pakistani perspective in a way, was the whole issue of, it's not, I don't talk about it in the book actually, was the whole sort of uh, the throwing uh, argument and the time when, uh, you know, Shreya was getting banned for throwing. Um, and, and I mean, my argument was that because of the microscopic analysis that's now possible with cameras, you can see that almost every player has some kind of kink in their elbow. Um, and what you need is a, a fair and standard system. And, and so I, I think my writing did have quite an influence. And at, at the time, uh, not that was going against the trend of what people thought about throwing. You know, they're very much against Murli and Shoaib and other. These people are chuckers, get them out of the game. But I came from the sort of medical perspective almost there, <laughs> um, which was to say, well, hang on a minute. If you look at the data, it shows that almost everybody has bend in their elbow and when the ICC looked at this that's what their investigations revealed and that's why they then changed the rules. Hmm. Interesting so let's talk about the PSL now and uh, you know the Pakistan culture has always warmed up to exciting band of cricket, brand of cricket even back in the glory days of you know Imran's team hmm. you know they were playing some very fearlessly aggressive ODI cricket so you think could PSL be the calling that PCB needs, you know, there are a lot of things that needed to fix, but could this be a marriage that, you know, can propel Pakistan cricket in the white ball format and give them some solidity and, you know, more laurels in the time to come? Could this be the path? Yeah, I think it can be. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm in T20 cricket, I think is, it's enjoyable. I mean, it's, it, um, and it depends, I mean, in some, how important is it? I mean, it's in some countries it's not that important it's just the money making it's a bit of a razzmatazz but in, in Pakistan it's it's crucial <laughs> and it was crucial because at the time when it started the PSL started yes there was T20 cricket already in Pakistan I mean I'm, we know that um, but it but it suddenly lifted the profile of the domestic game and it, became, it moved from being just a Pakistani thing 
to being something that's visible all around the world that drew international interest um, gave domestic cricket a shot in the arm we've spoken about how domestic cricket needs to be stronger um, and almost it's, it became a sort of pathway to being recognized as a, an, a as, as a talent and so ironically you, you might end up in the test team because you've done in well in the PSL so for Pakistan it was important visibility it was important to give visibility to international global kind of attention to its domestic game it was important for the players to have that kind of high profile event that they could really look forward to and identify with but importantly it allowed when it first and it still does now allow allows young talent to come through and to compete um, at a higher level um, with players from good players from around the world so I think it's a uh, for Pakistan PSL has been very very important and fundamental to the um, renaissance should we say over the last you know three or four years um, because in Pakistan as you rightly said it has always been a, a, been an exciting flamboyant um, one day team uh, in one day cricket and then you think well T20 cricket is made for Pakistan but Pakistan has never had consistent success in one in 50 over cricket or 20 over cricket and perhaps you know the, the Pakistan Super League now offers a way of being more successful more consistently um, so I, I think it's very important I mean you could not have predicted how important it has become I think so I, I spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time being critical of the Pakistan cricket board but on this one thing you've got to say well done you know it was amazing to make this happen to achieve what it's achieved and to have it as an ongoing event that is now that now continues to grow so the people behind it need absolute credit um, because it's been very much part of the revival of Pakistan cricket not just in T20 cricket but in every format sure all right, let's put a wrap on this conversation, but we have to get one India question. That's the big elephant in the room. So, <laughs> again, uh, there are a lot of politically motivated cricket differences between the fans and the boards, but I have a Pakistani friend, a close friend in the U.S. here, who really is a big Rahul Dravid admirer, and he always says he's amazed what Dravid has done to Indian cricket to shape the fortunes, a pipeline, working at the junior level, India A level. So... I mean, that's one example. I, I don't know what you, your take on that issue is with Dravid and the Indian juniors, but is there a snapshot from the Indian success that you wish the decision-making powers in Pakistan cricket can say, okay, you know what, we cannot replicate everything because there are a lot of factors at play, but there's one thing we can do while, you know, we see our neighbors have excelled and they've become such a cricketing force. Is there an issue or two that you think uh, can be brought to table and and you know and can be taken in stride positively. We're looking at India's success. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I think well, you've identified a very good one there, which is I mean, Raul Dravid. I mean, what an incredible player he is, and also incredibly wise in the way he goes about his cricket. So it's no surprise that he's made a success of the player development. And I think that that is an important area. It's, I think what in what what's in if you look at Go wind back 30, 40 years. Pakistan had great bowling. India had great batsmen. Some of the you know, most beautiful batsmen still have. You know, India's always had amazing batting. I used to love watching 
um, Indian batsman, Dilip Vansaka, was a particular favourite of mine. Mahinder Amanath is great to watch. Uh, Lakshman, of course, more recently. So I've always admired these touch players, and India's when they had them in, in abundance. Um, and then, but India was weak in bowling. I mean, let's be honest about it. Well, not as strong as Pakistan in bowling. So India now is a much more balanced team internationally. Strong bowling, strong batting, good fielding, with depth. And as we've discussed, Pakistan doesn't have those things. So that means India is doing something right that Pakistan isn't. <laughs> Pakistan is still fighting against the kind of weaknesses in, in batting that, it, that it's had for, for, for decades now. And, and that can only be because India's structure below the, the national team is strong, is robust. It's A, it's good at identifying talent. B, it's fairer because you're getting consistently excellent players coming through to the national setup. And C, it's developing those, that talent it identifies to become first rank international cricketers. So if there's one thing, and, and you know, you look across the border and you think, that's the one thing, you know, because ultimately, although Pakistan's population is smaller and is bigger, the overall demographic, it's, it's similar, you know, similar kind of populations um, in, in terms of many factors. So there's no reason why Pakistan should not also have uh, that strength in depth, that more balance in its in national team. Um, and it can only be because of the amazing work, the transformation that India has uh, achieved and over the last 10, 15 years really um, in terms of identifying talent and developing that talent. I think if Pakistan could replicate India's success in that, um, then we'd be in a much better place. But um, I'm not sure that's easily achieved. So well done to India on that front. No, and, and thank you for you know generosity of this interview. I know we have gone 20 minutes over. I enjoyed every bit of it. And I hope I can have you back some other day and talk a little <laughs> bit what's left today yeah. and maybe some new topics. And uh, really enjoy the conversation. Thank you for coming. And Thanks, Thanks Sakit. And check out the book. It's available on Amazon and other platforms. It's called Inglistan. Uh, the title gives it away. It's a journey of a fan, a uh, young cricketing aspiring uh, boy who grew up in Thatcher's England and then sees recollection of 40 years of Pakistan cricket. Thank you, Kamran. Thanks, Sarkit. Thanks very much.